0: Philippians, if you would, chapter 1. And we will jump right into this, Philippians chapter 1. I'm sure you uh, read the paper and it's fixing to say watch the news, but if you're like me, most of you get the news off of the Internet much anymore. I don't hardly read, uh, read the paper a little bit and watch a little bit of news, not like I used to. You read a lot of that uh, bullying, and uh, I guess for the last 20 years, an increasing amount is said about it, and the relationship between bullying and suicide. There are speakers that uh, go to different schools and venues, and they will speak about that topic. I think it was in 2001 or 2002 that someone coined a term, and they wrote a book about that and they call it bully side b-u-l-l-y-i-c-i-d-e which is when someone uh, bullies someone to the point where they take their life uh, they do this either personally face to or, face or worse I suppose through media now they have Facebook and Instagram where they can intimidate, mock and express their hatred that way Rejection and so forth this is this is a difficult thing at any age, but especially when you're a child, and then when that carries on for years into the teen years, uh, it's even more difficult. I've read some things, and there's an element of truth to it that older people like myself kind of grew up with that, and we didn't have any advocates. We were just kind of bullied, you know, and uh, sometimes our, our kids aren't tough enough. And I think there's something to be said there. But on the flip side, no one should be mocked uh, or made fun of or hated. And I think that it's an increasing problem that, that needs to be dealt with. That's not my topic. It's kind of a springboard into the message tonight that that bullying, in, in a less uh, way, I wouldn't necessarily call it that, but... Uh, and in a less profound form, is present sometimes within the institutional church. We wouldn't call it bullying; we would call it criticism. Uh, people criticize one another freely. Again, uh, Facebook can be a great blessing; it can be a great curse. Twitter, all of those things. Sometimes people just throw the bath uh, the, 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 the bath out with the baby. They throw the the. The baby out with the bathwater. And, uh, and they say, well, we're not going to use those platforms. And if they cause you to stumble, you shouldn't do that. But I understand the angst with things that are happening today and so forth. People criticize one another in the church sometimes. Pastors are critical of the pastors. Churches at large are critical of other churches and there's a superiority complex and I use that term correctly a lot of times I don't but I did we talk about an inferiority complex some people in churches have a superiority complex Uh, I've heard of uh, a church that uh, during prayer meeting on Wednesday night raised their hand and prayed for another local church not for a burden Uh, for the church, but because the church uh, was doing something that they felt that they shouldn't do, so they were praying collectively for the church. It was not a liberal church, it was a gospel preaching church, and so forth. Sometimes people have uh, come into our church, not naming names, I would never do that, but they come from a a mindset of another church which frankly has been cultivated by the leadership by the pastor that uh, hey we got the best church this is the best church i think sometimes unsaid is to have the best church you have the best pastor and uh, you're really privileged to have me here so we got something going on and and that that uh, that goes real good until you have a problem until you mess up until your child has a problem, and then you don't measure up to the standard, and then what do you do? Because you mess you mess the good church up. So where do you go? Well, you you can come over here, and because um, we're we're broken people, by the way, so are they, and and they know it. But uh, it's a whole lot easier to want to be the best. And so my heart is broken. I, I'm broken when I, when I hear that because I know what's going to come out of that. A life of pretension. I can't, I can't say how I really feel and how things are really going. Because if I do, uh, it's, it's not going to fit the narrative. We find that kind of situation here in the passage before us. It deals with Paul. Paul wrote two-thirds of the books in the New Testament But there was a group of people uh, here that he wrote about, probably there at the church in Rome. He did not start the church at Rome, but indirectly he did because he opened the gospel up to Europe. But they had rejected not just his ministry, but they rejected his person. And the whole idea here is that Paul, listen carefully, because this is... I'm not going to give you the whole message, but just a taste of it tonight and finish it later. Paul did not allow personal wrong treatment of him to steal his joy now this is this is a very powerful message i don't know that i've ever preached on anything like this i was telling tim the other day that you know one of the benefits of preaching through the bible verse by verse is not only do you have to deal with what's in front of you but what's in front of you are things that people need and sometimes things that you haven't thought to preach before so i want to talk to you tonight about joy in spite of criticism Joy in spite of criticism. It's going to be a lifelong challenge for every person in here of being mistreated, rejected, and criticized. Not just in the world, but to a lesser degree, depending upon where you are, even with church people. That's why some people drop out of church. And if you're not careful, it can cause you to lose your joy, cause you to become bitter, so here's the question. How, how can we be joyful when other people criticize us unjustly, especially when we thought that they were our friends? I want to say that again, because that, that's, that's where the pain comes. How can we be joyful when others criticize us unjustly when we thought that they were our friends? Well, we say we're saved, we think about being saved from hell, eternity separated from God. But salvation not only delivers us from hell, when God saved me, He delivered me from the need to be dependent upon the approval of other people for my joy. You see, my joy is not found in how people perceive me or treat me. My joy is found in Christ. Now listen, if you're a people pleaser, and all of us are to a certain degree, because if you're not, you're a psycho. Well, I'm just not a people pleaser. Well, well, you have other issues. You want to you want to peace, please. Please, I'm full of it tonight. On a rubber baby buggy bunkers. Let me get this out. You want to be a people pleaser. You want to minister to people. But if it's a chronic need in your life for people to approve of you, you're never going to be happy. Joy is not found in, in how people perceive you or applaud you. It's found in Christ. Now notice in the text here, we're not going to deal with all of this, but look at Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 15. And here is the problem and the solution. We'll just kind of deal with the problem tonight. Philippians one fifteen. Some indeed, Paul said, preach Christ even of envy and strife. That's... That just baffles me. How can you do that? How can you preach Christ from an attitude of Indian strife? But they did it. And some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? What's my response? Notwithstanding every way... Whether in pretense, people that aren't genuine, or in truth, that is, they are, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now, if you've been with us, remember in verses 12 through 14, Paul had been in negative circumstances. Verse 12, I would that ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have happened... Falling out, brother, under the furtherance of the gospel. And he talked there about how people begin to be emboldened to lift up the name of Jesus. And the whole idea there in verses 12 through 14 is that he had joy in spite of negative circumstances. And the whole thrust of verses 12 through 14 is you can have joy in spite of negative circumstances because you know the gospel's getting out. Even, even if, you, if you're chained, even if you're limited. And things aren't going your way. That's the thrust. Well, in verses 15 through 18, he says, You can have joy in spite of negative people. So I can be joyful if I'm in negative circumstances or I'm surrounded by negative people. That sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? But so many times, those are the two kind of negative poles that destroy us. I've got circumstances that are unhealthy from my perspective, I, they're painful. I don't like this. I'm surrounded by negative people, so it steals my joy. Joy is not a result. Listen, it is not a result of positive circumstances. Joy is not a byproduct of having positive people. Joy is a result of what is inside of you. It's the presence of God. If you're in negative circumstances, you can have joy tonight. There's no excuse for for being negative because you're in negative circumstances. You can have joy if you're surrounded by by negative people and they're, they're nipping at your heels. I didn't say it was pleasant, and sometimes there may be tears. But if you have the presence of God, if Jesus lives in you, you can have joy. Someone put it this way, that joy is not the absence of suffering, it's the presence of Jesus. Joy is not the absence of negative circumstances, not the absence of negative people. It's the presence of Jesus. So here Paul is in jail. He said a number of times, I'm in bonds. He's in prison there in Rome. And he's having to entrust the work of the gospel, of preaching and nurturing these these church planters to those that he has trained and those that he has taught. He can't do that anymore. And the people that he's mentored... Now, he's he's writing letters, some of the letters we have here in the Bible. And he's having meetings with people there. And one of the blessings of this sacrifice, as I mentioned, is people are more bold to preach the gospel in Rome. Notice in verse 14, Many of the brethren in the Lord are waxing confident by my bonds. That is because I'm in jail. And they're much more bold to speak the word without fear. So that was a benefit of one of the negative circumstances. But listen, many people were more bold to preach the gospel. And he rejoiced in that in the negative circumstances. But things were not all well in the Roman church because there were different groups in the Roman church that were preaching the same gospel from a different motive base. The first group had wrong motives and they wanted personal glory in the ministry, and they were opposed to Paul. We'll see that in a moment. The second group were doing it for the glory of God, and they loved Paul. And those were the two camps. I don't want to use that word, but that's what it was. It was two two separate groups preaching the same message with different reasons. I've been in the ministry a long time, I've seen this happen. One had the motive of jealousy. The other had the motive of love. Uh, you see it with, with the phraseology here. Look at verse 15. Look in your Bible again. Philippians one fifteen. Some, I have that underlined here. Some, that's one group, indeed preach Christ of envy and strife. And here's an extra, man, some, this is a second group, of goodwill. We'll study these words in, in detail later. The one, this is the group that was against him, preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. But the other, this is a group that had proper motives and supported Paul, of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Now, these were not heretics, all right? Paul did not rebuke them. He rejoiced in what they were doing. It remarkable. They were preaching the pure gospel. They were getting people saved. Notice in verse 15, the the words are used, preach Christ. In verse 16, he says that they preach Christ. In verse 18, it says Christ is preached. And he didn't rebuke them because they were preaching the gospel. Remember when he wrote to the Galatians and he, he, he gave them a rebuke like he gave no other church In the New Testament, a group of churches, actually. Because they were compromising the gospel of grace. Let me just read this to you real quickly in Galatians 1, 6 and following. Here's what he told them. this is when he rebuked these guys because they tinkered with the message. He said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him, that is, Christ, that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. This is not the same gospel you were called into which is not another, but there be some that trouble you, these are the false teachers, and would pervert the gospel of Christ. They're changing the gospel from a gospel of grace. The word gospel means good news. It's not bad news. It's not the gospel anymore. You're adding things to it. And he has some strong words here. But though we are an angel from heaven... Preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be accursed. It means separated from God. It means he's not a Christian. As we have said before, he repeats himself. So say I now again, If any man preach another gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. And so he very strongly here denounces these people that were preaching a false gospel. He did not do that in Philippians 1. And why didn't he denounce these people that were criticizing him, his person, and his ministry? And here's a statement I want to make. Because these people were not anti-Christ, but they were anti-Paul. They were not anti-Christ, they were anti-Paul. paul now this just uh, just to be honest, this just baffles me. John thirteen thirty five says, "By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another." First John four says, "If you don't love the brethren and you hate people, you're not a believer." Now they were pre- they were preaching the pure gospel, you know, and, and I can't say I don't know that these men were saved or lost. I can't say. But he did rebuke him because of the message. I do know people that have preached the gospel before, and people have gotten saved and haven't been saved. So I'm not I'm not the one to say they're saved or not. By the way, that's not the purpose of the thrust of of these verses. He's simply saying that you can rejoice when people criticize you, even for doing good things. That's what he's saying. And so this this bullying I put that in quotation marks. It's not quite that. If, if anything, it's worse because it's just so out in 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 front, or rather it's under the guise of religion and under the guise of Christianity. I uh a local pastor was uh speaking about me to another person one time and he said uh, brother Johnson is a good man, he's just weak in some areas. And he went on to tell how that my weakness was concerning some of the preachers that we had in and some of the music that we had. Now, he's a good guy. He's not anti-Christ. He's just anti-Rick a little bit. And he's not a bad man. I've never said one bad thing about him from the pulpit. I never will. Never will. By the way, that was a church that was praying for another church because of some things that they were doing. When he had a ministry anniversary, I found out about it and sent him flowers. So congratulations on your, your anniversary here in the area. You've been here a long time. God bless you for your faithfulness. We had a Christian school here. We had 320 students in it, which, relatively speaking, is a large school. We had a very small church. And philosophically, it was like the tail wagging the dog. I think it was the second year when I was here, and I, I had enough sense to know I, I, I had a philosophy of ministry, which is important that a uh, that a pastor has, very crucial. But I knew I couldn't run a school, so I, I hired a good school man that knew what he was doing, and he, and I, he came in, a good friend of mine, and I gave him the reins of the school. He was under me, and we met regularly, and uh, he was our assistant pastor, by the way. And so um, we had a chapel here, and uh, we had a singer that came in. They used a soundtrack, and the soundtrack was of a song that uh, some folks had written that later Frank Garlock, that doesn't mean anything to some of you, but is a very conservative man. The song was very conservative. The music was conservative. I started to major in music. I know a little bit about music, not as much as others, but I probably know more than most. And um, so I was a young, very young pastor, um, barely 30 years old, with a large school. And so their church did not like soundtracks. But that was not the issue. This was, a, this was another church in the area, not the same church. And that's fine. That's okay. If you don't like soundtracks. But it was under the guise that they didn't like the music. Well, I knew it wasn't the music because the pastor had listened to the tape. We didn't have CDs back then. He listened to the tape all the time in his car. Because his kids took piano lessons from the lady that sang with her husband. And I knew that. And I said, well, do you have this tape? Yeah, I listened to it in my car. I said, well, that's a song they sang. He said, well, I didn't know that. Because what he had done is he'd gone back, he had come to my office and unbeknownst to me, this was on a Monday, the night before, on a Sunday night, he had called a meeting at his church because some people were upset that we had some music that they didn't like. It wasn't an issue of music, it was an issue of soundtracks. And so uh, he presented it, and uh, I said, he said, these, these people don't want you to have that music in the Christian school. Well, I had a couple of problems with it. The first one was outside. It's a Toronto Village Baptist School. This was our school. And I was 30 years old, and he was about 20 years older than me. And I knew that uh, he, he was thinking, well, this, this young guy is not going to ruin this school for the students of our, I don't want to open a school. So we're going to let them have all the problems of the school. I know I'm being a little cynical here, but I'm not far from it, I don't think. And I said, well, do you know what the song was? I already told you that. He said, no. I said, well, here's the song. Do you have that tape? Well, yeah. I said, what, do you ever listen to it? Well, yeah, it's in my car. I said, well, that was the song. Do you have a problem with that song? No. I said, well, why did you meet with people and talk about a song that you didn't know that we played, that you listened to? And you didn't practice Matthew 18, 15, which says you go to someone individually. Now, I knew, I was very young, but I knew what happened. It's called the fear of man. Because the truth is, I didn't think he really wanted to be there. But rather than telling those people, say, you know what? We need to get some answers here before we we start shooting the messenger. Because some people within the church did not like what was happening here within their Christian school. Now, that particular church is not anti-Christ. It's a good church. I've recommended that church. But just a little bit, just a little bit, they're anti-Rick. Or they were. I don't know where they are, and it's not my concern. But I love that church. When that pastor has had a ministry anniversary, uh, we have sent him flowers, he and his wife. Now, I'm telling you some things. I'm opening my heart up to you because this is very raw about this passage. When I went to work with my pastor in Virginia, I got in the car December of nineteen eighty and I knew him pretty well. He was distracted. And just something was wrong. I said, Dave, what's wrong? He said, Well, he said, Do you know and he mentioned this guy's name? I said, No, I don't know him. He said, Well, he has a ministry in our church. And he said, uh, I made a decision in our church. By the way, my pastor had only been there for 18 months, for a year and a half. The church had a million-dollar debt. He had a lot on him and so forth. And he disagreed with the decision in our church. And so he got the church mailing list and sent out a letter to the entire membership detailing his complaint against me. And he's already left the church. He's gone to another church across town. But he's just, I don't know what to do. My preacher was, was, I think, at that time, he was uh, 28 years old. He outlived his critic, but it was very, very difficult in the moment and for a period of time after that. Years ago, I received a letter from, from someone that was not a member of our church but has attended here maybe four or five times in the history of our church. About five or six pages handwritten, full of anger, full of venom, personal attacks about a decision that I had made concerned someone in the family. And as I read through the letter, I could see the hurt that they had and also the anger. But I knew you don't don't know the whole story. You do not know the whole story. And I cannot tell you the whole story because of confidentiality. You will never know the whole story. I'll go to my grave with it. So I'm just going to have to take this. Years later, I saw this individual out and they said, could I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. And we went aside and they said, I wrote you a letter a while back. Do you remember that? I said, oh, yeah, I remember that letter. And they said this. They said, well, I I want to apologize for that. I, I should not have written that letter. And the truth is, everything you did was correct. And I did not have all of the facts. And the decision that you made was right. And if I knew what you knew, I would have come to the same conclusion. Now, on the surface, you may think that I thought, wow, I feel so good. Well, it was, it was probably right. But there was a part of me that said that this really doesn't fix anything. Because I know that you have besmirched my name through the mud with I don't know how many people. And are you going to go back to them? And who have they told? Now, now are you listening? These things, and I'm, I'm just scratching the surface a little bit. These things can steal your joy. I'm speaking about these things from the leadership standpoint. From a membership standpoint, they're true too. Let me put a kind of a postscript in here. Many times you do not have all of the facts, especially in terms of decision that leaders make. And leaders aren't always right. But a lot of times confidentiality is a part of it, many times. But many times, if not most of the time, you probably would agree with everything, if not with the majority of what was decided. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Well, you know, if if it was your head on the chopping block, and I was defending you. You would want me to do that and to protect you and protect your name. But I did that for someone else. And because I did that, and I would do that for you. And now I, I'm, I'm taking these things. Beware of knee-jerk reactions. Give people the benefit of the doubt. There's always a caution not to believe everything you hear. Especially if the accusation is about someone when it doesn't line up with their character. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 13, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. And that's why it's important to have have a matter of trust with, with your leaders. I don't mean just me, but your other leaders and with people in general. But especially with decision makers. Because that's, that's a sacred relationship that's given. Jonathan Edwards, who was a human instrument that brought in the, the Great Awakening, preached that message, centers in the Hand of Angry God, in Enfield, Connecticut. Uh, I've been there, and he also had a church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And our family has been there before was a very godly man and a prolific writer, one of the greatest theological minds in American history, a very sincere man, and uh, a fascinating person. He has a lineage in the American history of, of, of his legacy, just unbelievable, of the people that came out from his, his lineage. is phenomenal. Jonathan Edwards served in a church there in Northampton, Massachusetts, for 23 years and would have stayed there longer but was voted out of his church by a 90% vote. By 90% vote. Not because of a moral problem, but because he took a strong stance on who should and should not take the Lord's Supper. He believed converted people should. And he preached that. And uh, there were some other things that went on. And when he was voted out, you can read kind of the history on it, he, he was very gracious about it. And he spent the rest of his life ministering to Indians in a very, I'm going to use this term, but I don't mean it, but from a human perspective in a very insignificant ministry until he died, I think, four years after that. Charles Spurgeon, probably the greatest preacher in in the 1800s, phenomenal preacher, faced severe opposition from other preachers and Christians. It's called the downgrade controversy. That's what they called it. It was over... Uh, false doctrine and heresy. Spurgeon must have been a very a sensitive man because he, he was very depressed and discouraged about it. Spurgeon would get so, so depressed and discouraged. You can read this that the men of his church would have to go to his home and have to pick him up from his bed and bring him to the church to preach. And you would never know that. We don't have his voice anywhere. But you would know, never know that reading his sermons. He, he's one of the most um, printed authors in American history is Charles Spurgeon. It's almost funny that the people that opposed Spurgeon and were so against him. And by the way, he listen to this. He died when he was 57 years old. I'm 60. He died when he was 57 years old. With a lot of emotional suffering and so forth. But the people that opposed him, years later, they, they put a statue of Spurgeon outside of the headquarters. They appreciated him later. Dr. Lee Robertson, who pastored the church that I was a member of for a short time there at Highland Park. And the school, I attended the school that the church sponsored and he started in the 1940s. When he was in his mid-60s, there was a a division among the deacon board that felt that his time was up as a pastor of Highland Park Baptist Church. This was in the early 80s, 1980s. They felt the church needed to go in a different direction. They needed a new voice and a new style of preaching. Rather than fight it because he loved the church, he didn't want to have a church split he resigned to keep peace in the church and said, well, I'll just travel and encourage people to send their kids to go to school here and attend church when when I'm at home, but I won't be here much because I'll be traveling. But personally, it it devastated him. I had private conversations and he wouldn't go into it much. But it, it devastated him. Today, this tonight... The church no longer exists, and the school no longer exists. Is, is there a relationship there? Is there some relationship there? I don't know. Let me give you one, one thought tonight about critics and our proper response to them. We'll deal with that later. Just one key thought, and we'll go home. And this is the thought. Number one, criticism will come to the best of people. Criticism will come to the best of people, even unjust criticism. It's untrue, and it comes from people that profess to know Christ. Sometimes they do know the Lord, but they profess to know Christ. You know, when we read about the early church, we say, Oh, I wish I could just be in the early church. Things were better off there. Well, let's look at Philippians 1, 15 and 16 again. Look at it. Look at your Bible. Some indeed preach Christ of envy and strife. Verse 16, the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely. This is the early church. This is not many years after the church started. Why did they do this? Well, the Bible says there in verse 15, it was out of jealousy and envy. They preached Christ of envy and strife. Jealousy is like a cancer. It's a deadly sin, a deadly disease that grows into other types of sins. And one of those is criticism. Now, who are they criticizing? They were criticizing not just the greatest Christian in the New Testament, one of the greatest Christians in the world, but the man that, that penned two thirds of the New Testament and the man, listen, that brought them the gospel. The man that brought them the gospel, they would not be saved if it were not for what Paul did in Acts 16 when he listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit and he went to Europe. They wouldn't even be saved. And out of envy, we're going to develop this in a later message, this this breaks my heart. But here's the thought here, I don't want to develop those other thoughts. If Paul was criticized, you will too hopefully not like he was. Being innocent, having a good character and good motives will not immunize you from being criticized. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world... Therefore, Jesus said, the world hates you. The world hates you. Remember the word our Lord said that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. You're not greater than me. If they criticize me, they're going to criticize you. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, if they criticize Jesus, they're going to criticize you. If they criticize Paul, they're going to criticize you. But here's the issue. In John 15, this is coming from lost people. The Bible says that Satan operates the world. This is coming from people that have a a contrarian philosophy of Bible truth. This is what hurts. It's not that. That's bad enough. What hurts is here in Philippians 1, 15 and 16 because these critics are on our same side. They were on the same side as Paul, at least in terms of preaching the same message, but the loyalty was not there. The higher visibility you have, the more shots people are going to take at you. The higher you are up the leadership chain, the more you accomplish, and the more you will be criticized. Albert Hubbard said to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. So don't be surprised when it comes. Let me give you some scriptures here in closing. Peter wrote the church in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and said, Beloved, think it not strange. Don't say, why is this happening? Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Don't be surprised by it. And I think that that's one reason the Holy Spirit included this in the text here. Paul's saying, you can still have joy, but it's going to come. Betrayal will come. Criticism will come. Negative comments are going to come. Don't leave the church. Don't run. Think it not strange, as though some strange thing hath happened unto you. And I read about the psalmist. How many times a psalmist went through this? Listen to the emotions of the writer here. Psalm thirty eight eleven, watch this. My lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore, and my kinsmen stand afar off. My friends aren't with me. Psalm forty one, verses seven through nine All that hate me, and here's one crowd, all that hate me whisper together against me. Against me do they devise my hurt. An evil disease, say they cleaveth fast unto him. And now, some people think that David had venereal disease because of his sexual sin. Perhaps he did. An evil disease, say they cleaveth fast unto him. And now, that he lieth, he shall rise up no more. That's one crowd. Watch this. Yea, even mine own familiar friend. And here's the hard part, in whom I trusted which did eat of my bread, we, we had meals together, we laughed together, hath lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55 verses 12 through 14. It was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. And to pay attention to that, it's a lot easier to bear it when your enemy says it. But when it's in the house, when it's a professing Christian, It's hard. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou. A man mine equal, my guide, and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked into the house of God in company. We went to church together. We fellowship together. A friend, of mine, my, a friend of mine asked J. Harold Smith, a great evangelist who'd been preaching for over 50 years. He said, what, uh, what was the most challenging thing that you ever experienced in the ministry? And Smith, he, he, he didn't blink. He instantly responded. I, was, I wasn't there when he, the conversation happened. But my friend told me. Dr. Smith, what is the most challenging thing you've ever experienced in the ministry? And just just quickly, he said, being betrayed. Being betrayed. Well, that's going to happen to you too, but sometimes it says, as a writer in the psalm says, it's in the house of your friends. Our joy is found in Christ, not in how people perceive us or treat us. Don't forget that. That's the encouraging part. You see, the best people can be criticized. You can have the best character. You can have the best intentions. And you're still going to take it sometimes, but you can still have joy. You're not the exception. And tonight, if you've ever been hurt by someone, get your joy from Jesus. Get your joy from Jesus. I want you to bow your heads with me, Okay.